Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this time tonight to be together, to open your word, Lord, to study your word, to have it exhort us and change us and shape us and mold us. Lord, we are grateful that we can come to you in prayer. We know, Lord, that we are weak, our flesh is weak. The spirit is strong, but the flesh is weak. And we desire to commune with you. We desire to, to have our greatest heartfelt desires heard by you. We know that you hear them. We're thankful that we have a God, even though we do not see you we know you are there and we know you hear us and we know that you are sovereign over all things. And so we can, just like we heard tonight, be thankful in all things. And so tonight, as we approach your word, as we think about what it teaches, Lord, may it do just that for us. May it remind us of who you are and may we be indeed thankful. Thankful for all things and come to you first and foremost rather than as a last resort. Thank you for your patience with us, your care for us as a loving Father. Use this time now to honor your name and bless us through it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight I want us to uh, turn our attention to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. <clears throat> If you know the Psalms at all, then you understand that Psalm 73 is a shift, really, from many of the Psalms of the Psalter, not because of particularly the Psalm itself, but because it is not a Psalm of David. It's not a Davidic Psalm, as most of them are. In fact, Psalm 73 is one of 11 Psalms written by a man named Asaph. Asaph. And I think Asaph is a, is a refreshing Bible character. Not You don't hear his name in many Bible stories. You don't obviously hear him in children's Sunday school curriculums and these kinds of things, but he's a refreshing Bible character. And I say that because oftentimes when we read the scriptures about Bible characters or we hear of one Bible character from someone who is teaching a class, or just maybe we read of one in a book, we can go away from that time thinking that because of the cultural differences or because of the time that has passed and the history has gone by with that Bible character, we think we can't identify with them. It's hard to kind of put ourselves in their shoes and the principles of their life sometimes that were hoping to gain from reading about them, sometimes just fall flat and on deaf ears. But that's not so with Asaph. I think we will find tonight that he is a man just like we are. Asaph is a man just like us. He thinks just like we do. He views his world in many ways just like we do. He may be separated from us by thousands of years of history, but the thoughts of his heart each one of us here have had, and quite possibly we may even be having those thoughts right now. 
Asaph was a man in the tribe of Levi. The Levites were part of the priests of Israel. Um, and he was in charge of the music part of worship. Chris tonight would have been Asaph. Leading the synagogue in the worship of their God. And he was in charge of that music worship side of the services under the reign of King David. In fact, 1 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 39 says that he performed the music when the great temple of Solomon was inaugurated in the city of Jerusalem. So he was around at that time. And he was a, a minister of music in the synagogue, and he had the responsibility of putting music to the Psalms of David, as David had written them, as well as to the ones that he had composed himself. And, and what makes Asaph's life so interesting and intriguing and even attractive to me as a pastor, and I hope maybe you as well, is that even though he was in one sense a pastor, he was the worship minister, if you will, he is so honest. He's honest about what's going on in his own thoughts as he observes life around him. The world in which he lives, the life that he sees happening around him. And so as we go through this psalm, we find out that Asaph thinks like we think. In other words, as he watches society around him, he's honest about the fact that his perspective was flawed. As he looks at life and the people around him and what's going on in the society around him, he, he realizes that his view of things has been flawed. And that is simply to say that his spiritual eyes know the truth. He knows what's right. He knows the Old Testament Torah. He knows the law, but his experiential eyes see an apparent contradiction. The way he's seeing life happening and what he knows and what he knows of the Word of God doesn't seem to be playing out. And this is the point, really, that we need to understand overall tonight. When perspective is flawed, when perspective is flawed, it will have a potentially spiritual damaging effect on our lives. When perspective is flawed, it will potentially be a spiritually damaging effect upon our lives. And here in Psalm 73, Asaph is perplexed with society. He's perplexed with the world around him and where he is living. And so he makes what I'm listing is 10 declarations about his experience of life that will help us, I think, realize that if we have a perspective problem, it can be deadly. It can be a real spiritual issue. So let's just begin to look at Psalm 73 with that in our minds, that background kind of laying the foundation. And let's look at these declarations together and just walk through his experience so that we can learn how to evaluate our own, our own experience. 
Declaration number one is this, and I call them declarations because they're just what Asaph is saying. He's declaring these things. And the first thing is realized truth. This is the declaration of realized truth. And we see it here in verse one. Asaph says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The, the, the struggle, the fight, the difficulty for Asaph has already been fought and he has already won the battle. And so he's beginning at the end. He, he's giving us the conclusion, if you will, right out of the start. He's telling us like it is. And in verse 1, we're getting the end of the story. We're getting the realization that he knows to be true and where he arrives at right from the start, right at the beginning. So it's like we're reading the final chapter of this book. Uh, it would be like us if we were interacting with someone who hadn't seen us for a while, or maybe one of our even close friends, and we're talking to them about something that God had done in our life, and what we learned about our own sinfulness in this issue, and we begin the story with, let me tell you how good God is. That's what Asaph is doing. Let me just tell you how good God really is and what He has done for me in all of this. This is where he begins. It's where he almost fell from, and it's where he ends up. He almost fell from the reality that God was good in his own mind and heart, and yet he ends up in that very place saying, surely God is good. Surely God is good. God is good, but for a time, for a time in the mind of Asaph, that wasn't his perspective. Minister of Israel, a Levite, someone who had all the history Someone who heard all the stories, someone who had heard all the testimony of those from old who had wandered through even the wilderness, and yet Asaph's perspective wasn't that God is good. Why? Because all of the seeming evidence was to the contrary. All of the experiential life in which he was seeing and life in which was being lived around him as he surveyed the world around him was contrary to that reality, at least in his perspective. Fortunately, his experience was not allowed by him to rule over objective, true reality. Think about our own Christian life. Often the question is asked, if God is good, then why is there so much wickedness? If God is good, why... Why is the world so troubled? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much struggle? Why is there so much difficulty? Why are there wars and rumors of wars if God is such a good God? And oftentimes we struggle for an answer. We struggle to find something that concretely can close the door of that question. Why? Because we look around and we see others and we see what others are seeing. We see the same trouble. We see the same difficulty. We face the same difficulty. We face the same irritants. But our experience is not the end. 
My wife tells me from time to time when I'm struggling with something in somebody's life, she says, remember, this isn't the final chapter. Our experience is not the end, and we cannot allow that to override the objective truth that Asaph declares. After all, God is good to Israel. God is good to Israel and all those who are pure in heart. That is his declaration of realized truth. This is realized truth. God is good to Israel. He is good to all those who are pure in heart. This is the very nature. This is the very character of God. This is where Asaph almost fell from. And so right at the gate, right at the peak, the peak is realized truth. And Asaph gives us a glimpse into what took place in his heart. And like the first hill of a, of a giant roller coaster, I don't know if you like riding roller coasters. I used to really enjoy them. The older I get, the more they seem to bother me. Not because I'm fearful, but they just do things to my body that I never thought would happen. But like the first hill of a giant roller coaster, here it is. Asaph records his descent into the second declaration that he makes. The declaration of a realized danger. The declaration of a realized danger. Know what verse, look at verse 2. But as for me, declaration number 1, God is good. That's his realized truth. God is good. Verse 2, here's the danger. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. So here he is, having started at the peak. God is good. The foundational conviction in his heart of the goodness of God for all Israel, for all who are pure in heart. Now he acknowledges that that wasn't always the firm conviction that was on his mind. I love this because it really is a heart confessing the vast difference between him and his God. Here is Asaph, a pastor of the people, saying, God is good. Here's where I was. Here's where I was. God is good, but as for me, I came really close attributing to God a lack of goodness. I came really close where I got to the place where I was going to begin to believe that God wasn't good. In other words, I was so close to the edge. I was so close to the edge. One lean in the wrong direction and I would have been over the cliff. When I was 12 years old, my father and I had the opportunity to take a backpacking trip to the top of Mount Whitney. Mount Whitney is in California, the highest peak in the continental United States. It's 14,494 feet. I only know that because I left some of my insides on the outside when I got to the top of that mountain. It's not one you have to rock climb. You just go up the trail. But it's so high in altitude that it, it can bother you, and it obviously bothered me, but at the top of Mount Whitney, it's like a big rock pile. And there is a sheer cliff of about 3,000 feet at one edge. 
and we wanted a picture right there on the edge, and we stepped to the edge, and the rock was going like this. It was quite, quite interesting, but we were close to the edge. Well, that's what Asaph is saying. It's his declaration of realized danger spiritually. I was dangerously close to falling from the solid foundation of who God is. In other words, my inner eyes surveyed life around me and my flesh began to question God's goodness. As I looked at life, as I saw life, even though I knew who God was, and I saw what was happening, to be honest, I looked at life and I began to wonder, is God really good? Thinking about that in my own Christian life, I look back in my own Christian life and I've gotten like that. I've gotten like that at places where, where I was at the edge, at, at the precipice, at the place where the seed of doubt was sown. And had it been allowed to grow, it would have been devastating. God is good. God is good. Doubt can be so subtle, can it? I mean, each one of us here tonight know our own hearts. We know where we have those subtle seeds. Satan is always trying to undermine our certain convictions concerning God. The certain things about the very character and nature of God in our own life, especially when trouble comes, especially when it's difficult, especially when things aren't happening the way we'd hope they'd happen or the way we think they should happen. Seeds of doubt. Satan is right there wanting to cultivate and blow wind on that seed. He's always trying to do that. How does it happen? How does it happen? It happens the same way it did in the heart of Asaph. It happens through what I've labeled as the declaration of perplexed vision. The declaration of perplexed vision. Notice verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, here's, here's how I came close to the edge. Here's how I came close to doubting the very character and nature of the goodness of God. Here's how I was at that place where the subtle seeds of doubt were sown and, and I almost fell off the edge. I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I had perplexed vision as I looked at the world around me and I envied what they had. I envied who they were. I envied their life. thinking about it this afternoon as I was looking over this passage. Envy is a subtle reality for all of us. It's a struggle. It's a difficulty. Simply put, envy is just jealousy. That's what it is. Envy is simple jealousy under a different name. But, but it's more than that. It, it's more than just wanting what someone else has. Envy is more than that. At its root, envy is actually, get this, it is accusing God that He's not good because I don't have it. 
So it's not simply looking at someone's life and saying, gee, I wish I had what they had. It's what Asaph is saying here. I was envious of the arrogant because I saw their prosperity and I was doubting the goodness of God because I didn't have it. You see, it's something that you do not have and desiring it with a heart that sees God as evil because he hasn't given it to you. So Asaph was perplexed by the same thing that has perplexed Christians throughout the ages. You say, really? Yeah, listen to what Job said. Job 21.7, why do the wicked still live? Why do they continue on? Also, why do they become very powerful? Job said, God, why is it that they're even around? Jeremiah also asked in Jeremiah 12, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Why is it that way, Lord? We ask the same kind of questions. But the problem isn't what God allows with the wicked. The problem is far too often where we allow our hearts to go with those questions. We become envious of the wicked, and as a result, we get close to the edge of accusing God that he's not good. In other words, we're like Asaph. We're just like him right here. We compare the the health of others. We compare the wealth of others. We compare their, their life and whatever God is allowing to prosper in their life with our lack of those things, and we begin to resent God. We begin to say to God, why don't I have them? You're not good to me. Why, God, are you allowing them to have those? I'm the one who serves you. I'm your child. we begin to resent the fact that God isn't treating us the way we think He should. Because, after all, other people, especially those who aren't spiritual like us, after all, they're doing a whole lot better than we are. While they just seemingly coast along through life, they seemingly get along with out any struggle at all, yet for me, there's one struggle after another struggle after another struggle. You see, we're like Asaph. We have a perspective problem. We have a perspective problem, and it's deadly if we don't take care of it. We envy others, and in our envy, we actually are criticizing God, and it's sin. It's sin. In fact, look at what Asaph says about those things. Look at what he says and see see if you can hear your own voice in his words. Notice what he says in verses 4 through 12. For there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. 
They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart just run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they have increased in wealth. He says, listen, I look around, I see society, I see the people around me, I see those who are walking around in Jerusalem, and I see that the wicked die satisfied. The wicked live satisfied. They are never humble, but that doesn't seem to matter. They, they get whatever they want, and it doesn't seem to matter. They mock God, and they mock His people, and it doesn't seem to matter. Everybody seems to love them, verse 10. Everybody seems to flock to them, and on top of it all, it only seems that it gets better for them, verse 12. They're always at ease, and they just keep increasing in wealth. Have you ever said in your heart about the prosperity of another person, boy, that would be nice if I could have that? You ever said that? When we do that, watch out. Watch out, you're close to the edge. Right at the precipice. Right at the edge. You're right where Asaph said, my feet are coming close to stumbling. I was on that slippery ground. Wrong perspective can be deadly. So it was almost for Asaph. So he makes a fourth declaration. It's the declaration of perceived foolishness. The declaration of perceived foolishness. Notice verses 13 and 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. This is the, the declaration of perceived foolishness. In other words, what's the point of me doing what I'm doing? What's the point of me living the way I live? <clears throat> we might even say it this way. What is the advantage of being a Christian if others who are not Christians don't have any of the struggles that we have in life? What's the point? Not only do I get what I not only do I not get what I want, but it seems as if I'm getting punished for attempting to do good. This is what Asaph is saying, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. <clears throat> Surely, I've washed my hands in innocence in vain. Doesn't seem to change anything. I've been stricken all day long, chastened every morning. Beloved, this is the stupidity of foolishness. This is the stupidity of foolishness. This is what happens. 
Goodness of God every time. <clears throat> when we begin to compare our own selves with everybody else rather than with the hand of God and what God has for us, that all things from the Father are good. When we begin to compare what God is doing or not doing with us in comparison to what He's doing or not doing with others, we will, we are there. We will doubt the goodness of God. And this is where Asaph says he was. My feet were there. I was at the edge. About to go over the cliff. This is my heart. This is what I was thinking. This is where I was at. And so he makes his fifth and sixth declaration. <clears throat> the fifth is the declaration of proper silence. And the sixth is the declaration of profound wonder. Notice this first one, the declaration of proper silence, verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak this way, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, if I would have spoken the way they speak, the wicked speak, I would be betraying the very generation of the people who are the people of God. So you notice that even at his lowest point, when he was most jealous when he was most envious he still knew he still knew that others were watching he still knew that his life was being watched by others that he was an example for others and that if he spoke of it if he came out and said this is who i am i'm envious of the wicked that that would cause others to stumble he knew he needed to be careful And it's interesting, <clears throat> it's interesting for us to remember this point because Asaph had said that he almost slipped. My steps had almost slipped back in verse 2. In other words, had he bought the lie, had he, had he gone all the way, he would have verbalized what he was wrestling with in his own heart and he would have actually said, you know what, God isn't good. And he would have betrayed the generation of God's people. Others would have been eternally affected. More importantly, God would have been blasphemed. But he kept silent. That's why the verse starts that way, if I had said this, implying that he was silent. It was a proper silence. So here's his declaration of proper silence. In other words, he didn't let the seed of doubt germinate in his heart. He didn't let it produce death. He didn't let his foot slip off. That tells me, beloved, that just because I don't understand some things, I can still bow at the wall of mystery and not be crushed. Sometimes, Sometimes this is the reality of what we must do when we're standing before a holy God that we do not fully comprehend in every way that we hoped we would. We stand at the wall of worship because I don't understand it all. And when I stand at the wall of worship, it is a profound wonder 
This is what Asaph says. This is his declaration of profound wonder in verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. In other words, I surveyed the world. I knew what God had declared. I knew that God's de- declaration about himself is he's good, that he, he loves his people, that he cares for his people. And yet, as I surveyed the world around me, all I see is the opposite. I see a contrary reality. He doesn't understand. He, he's at the wall of worship before God. God has declared realities about himself that Asaph doesn't seem to see happening. And he says, when I ponder to understand this, it's troublesome in my sight. I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's a profound wonder to me. I'm perplexed. I'm perplexed, and yet I have this profound wonder. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense in my eyes. I have a profound wonder about it all. But then comes the turning point. Then comes the point where you move away from the cliff's edge then the problem is solved. The declaration of realized clarity. Number seven, the declaration of realized clarity. Notice verses 17 through 20. When I pondered, verse 16, when I pondered to understand it, it was troublesome in my sight when until I came into the sanctuary of God was then that I perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You have cast them down to destruction. They are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. I love this. This is the way out. In the midst of a spiritual descent, in the midst of a spiraling decline because the perspective is only on the world, now something has changed. He is engulfed in a sea of deceived thinking in his own mind, and then comes the turning point, and his vision becomes clear again. When? When he comes into the sanctuary of God. Just when Asaph was about to plunge himself to destruction by actually attributing to God that God was not good. He enters the sanctuary of God and understands once again the end of the wicked. That's what the words the, their end mean. When it says the end of the wicked, I, I, I came into the sanctuary of God and perceived their end. Those words, their end, mean the final end of the wicked. Their eternal end. I perceived that. In other words, he regains an eternal perspective. He, he sees what's going to happen with them in eternity. The earth for them may seem like heaven, but their eternity is an eternal hell. 
In other words, if this life is heaven for the wicked, then all they can do is get it while the getting's good because the end is coming. That's what Asaph is implying. And he even says it outright, Surely, God, you have set them in slippery places. Surely you have cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away in sudden terrors. They're, they're, they're like a dream when one awakes. When you're aroused, the dream is gone. You don't, it's not there anymore. You're not in the dream anymore. It's, it's gone in a moment like that. You despise even their form. Asaph's perspective has now immediately been adjusted. They seem secure. The wicked seem secure as my perspective goes out into the world. It seems as if they are secure, but they're actually on slippery ground. Do you notice, by the way, that Asaph uses that similar language about himself in verse 2? My steps had almost slipped. You know what he's intimating? I was becoming like them. I was so close to the edge, I was like one of them. They live in slippery places. This is their home. They seem secure, but they're not secure at all. And with one small breath of God's judging wind, they are blown off the edge of the cliff to ruin. Asaph's experiential vision is cleared up with God's objective truth. Things will change so quickly. Things will change so, so quickly. By the way, turn for a moment back to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, you remember it well. Israel has been taken into the promised land. They're beginning to, to conquer the nations, and Joshua is leading them now. And they had been told to go and to fight against the city of Ai, or I, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And in chapter 7, we see what happened. What happened at Ai because of how they responded to the battle of Jericho, where they saw God miraculously knock the walls of Jericho down. They took the city. You notice in chapter 7, verse 1, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. There were things that they were not to take, things they were not to keep for themselves, the spoils of war that God had said you're not to take those. And yet here is one under the people of God, one who is one of the people of God, Achan. And he had done what he should not do. The son of Camry, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Joshua didn't know that yet. He didn't know that God was angry. He didn't know that someone had taken the spoil. 
And so Joshua sends men from Jericho to Ai, or Ai, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land, so that when so they went up and spied out the land, they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let the people go up, but only two or 3,000 men need to go to Ai. In other words, it's not a big battle. Don't send everybody up there. We don't need the whole people. Just send three, two or 3,000 people to do it. That should be all it takes. So about 3,000 men, people went up there and they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as the Shibarim and struck them down on the descent so that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So here the people had lost the battle. <coughs> they thought it was so easy. They'd gone up because Joshua thought this is what God wants. We're supposed to go and take this. And yet they lose. <clears throat> and so the whole, the whole nation of Israel is frightened. Joshua tears his clothes, falls to the earth and his face before the ark of the Lord. Till evening, both his hand, he and his elders puts dust on their heads. And Joshua says, Alas, Lord, why? Why did you ever bring us over here, over the Jordan, to deliver us into the hand of these Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell, we were willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Lord, what, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemy? So the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land are going to hear about it and they're going to surround us and cut us all to pieces. And what will you do for your great name, Lord? The Lord said to Joshua, I love this. Get up. I love that. Joshua is saying, Lord, it doesn't look like what you said. You said you were going to conquer the people, and this is not what we're experiencing. Sounds like Asa. I love it. God says, get up. Why is it that you've fallen on your face? Listen, I'm not the problem. Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. They have even taken some of the things under the ban and have stolen and been and deceived. Things can change so fast. Things appear on the outside to be one way. And yet God hasn't changed at all. God is just as good. God hasn't changed. Listen, if we go all the way in our doubts about God, there will be consequences. You cannot doubt who God is or what God does without consequences. And this is what we see happening. The, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. So get up. Consecrate yourself. Consecrate yourself for tomorrow. For thus the Lord God of Israel, he said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You can't stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. Listen, I'm not going to be with you until you're with me. 
That's consequences. Consequences for not doing what God said, but also doubting who God is. Of course, we know what happened. God pulled the people together. Achan was identified. They took him, the spoil, and all those who were with him. Verse 25, Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised up over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. God honors obedience. God honors those who honor him. We cannot go all the way in our doubt without having consequences. What the wicked have now seems desirable. Seems desirable. But beloved, it's only a fantasy. It's only a fantasy. So Asaph makes an eighth declaration. He makes an eighth declaration by saying how foolish he had been. How foolish he had been. It's the declaration of realized foolishness. Notice what he says in verse 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. Don't forget who he was embittered at. He was embittered at God. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. It was then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before God. I love it. Asaph encapsulates his, the reality of what was behind his envy. What was really behind his envy was not really what he was seeing in the people. It was actually bitterness against God. It was bitterness against God. The Hebrew word here for embittered is the same idea as leaven. Leaven. His heart was leavened. Reminds us of Paul's words of the Corinthian church, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, bitterness, you let a little bitterness in your heart, you let a little bitterness be there, guess what? It's going to affect all of you. It's going to affect all of you. It will affect every area of your life. And your responses to life will be like that of a dumb animal. You'd be like a beast before God. Senseless, dumb animal. In fact, the word senseless in verse 22, in the Hebrew it's used five times. Three times it's translated senseless. Two times, I love this, it's translated stupid. I love that. That's how God talks to me. He says, you're just being stupid. That's the kind of things I need to hear. You're just being stupid. We can say it like this. Bitterness makes you stupid. Bitterness just makes you stupid. That's what it does. It destroys you. And so Asaph makes this ninth declaration about himself. The declaration of clear perspective. He says, nevertheless, verse 23, I'm continually with you. 
You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, Asaph went into the sanctuary of God and his perspective has changed. And having embraced God's objective truth, Asaph gains a new, clear perspective. He sees it rightly. No longer did he have this warped perspective on what God was doing and who God was. Now he has clear vision. He sees things through God's eyes. He sees things as he ought. And most importantly, he recognizes that God has been with him all along. And that he always will be. Even in the worst moments. Even in those moments we don't understand, God is right there. He is with us. We like to sing a lot of hymns in our church. And Charles Wesley, of course, wrote many, many hymns in his day. But when he was on his deathbed, his thoughts were really fixed on Psalm 73. And it's written about him that he says about this, about verses 25 and 26, that he was really looking at those verses. And as he reflected on those words, he said these last words, quote, in age and feebleness extreme, what shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity, unquote. That's the right spiritual perspective. Clear vision. Clear vision. And so Asaph makes one final declaration. It's the declaration of realized ends. Realized ends, verse 27 and 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. The end of the wicked is going to be destruction. It's going to be an eternal hell. They have no place with God. And the only goodness they get to touch is what they have right now. God allows the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. God's gracious patience in withholding his immediate wrath is goodness to them, but not so for those who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This isn't our goodness. The good we have has nothing to do with this earth. The good we have has everything to do with God. That's why Asaph says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. That's my good. The nearness of God. Nothing could be nearer to me than God. Nothing on this earth is good. Only God alone is good. Having God is enough good for all eternity. That's what Asaph is saying. 
You see, and this is the perspective because in a world where evil prospers, in a world where sin seems to always be gaining more than righteousness, it's so imperative, it's so important for you and I to have our eyes fixed on the objective truth of God and His goodness. And so we need to learn the lesson that Asaph learned. We need to learn it in the deepest possible way. And God can give us the proper perspective. We can have the proper perspective in life, but only if we allow Him to dominate our lives so that we trust Him and Him alone. So that that's our perspective. So that we can tell of all, all of His works. I don't want to tell people what I have on this earth because none of it matters. All we should want to tell people is what God is doing because God is good. He is eternally good. Well, let's pray. Father, I trust that you will give us more you have actually given us more than we ever deserve. Protect us from ourselves. Protect us from envy, from envying the things of this world and really envying what others have because really it's bitterness against you. Please help us to be content in this life. Content with the things that you have allowed in our life that our best good is to have you in our lives. For you are our strength and our portion forever. And with that, we are blessed more than all people. We have more than we could ever ask or think just because we have you. What a great blessing. And so we thank you for that tonight. We thank you for the lesson from the life of Asaph. Lord, may that be our perspective about you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.